Maybe Al, do you remember the old ending you folks put on that thing? I know I started on the old record, I started it like this. There's a dark and a troubled side of life. There's a bright and a sunny side too. Hello, welcome to a six-string hayride podcast, a journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. We will be covering all of the great topics in country music, from mama to prison, to dancing, to drinking, to guitar picking, to all the crazy deal with the devil, honky-talking stuff you do on Saturday night, and how you try to get it past your Lord on Sunday morning. So climb aboard the cart and let's go. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping. With folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. Welcome to a Six String Hayride podcast. This is episode eight. We will be focusing on some of the most influential and successful women in country music. This is more or less our list of the queens. Obviously, this is something that begins in 1927. The obvious starting point for anyone having this conversation is going to be Sarah. Carter and her younger cousin, Maybell Carter. These two are responsible for adapting old public domain and traditional type songs into really the basis for almost all country music. They establish themselves as song catchers, for lack of a better word. They are both exceptional musicians. Sarah on the auto harp, uh, who is also known for her distinctive lead singing voice. Maybell, we've established throughout this series, is the original great guitar player. Now Johnson, there's Jimmy Rogers, and there's Maybell, and you know that's the beginning. Uh, she is also accomplished on the auto harp and a tremendous singer in her own right. These women take us through into the early 1940s, where we get a little bit from Patsy Montana. Because she whip out her pistol and shoot most any guy and sing out this alibi. I didn't know the gun was loaded and I'm so sorry, my friend. I didn't know the gun was loaded and I'll never, never do it again. And from the very colorful and fabulous Rose Maddox, who performed with her brothers through the 30s and 40s. High on the mountain, tell me what do you see? Bear 
tracks looking back at me Better get your rifle, boy, before it's too late Cause the bear's got a little pig and headed through the gate He's big around the middle and he's broad across the rump Running 90 miles an hour, taking 30 feet a jump Ain't never been caught, he ain't ever been treed Some folks say he looks a lot like me But the sad truth is we don't really get proper big huge female country artists who are successful not just as recording artists or live performers but as songwriters as arrangers as musicians as women who are among equals and can exert an equal influence on their recording sessions their contracts their live appearances well, as we mentioned, uh, Sarah Carter leaves the Family Act around 1943 when she marries Coy Bays, her ex-husband's first cousin. They moved to California, semi-retired lifestyle. And we had noted that really not a lot happens in terms of significant female country artists through the 40s and the 50s until we get to Patsy Cline. The one real strong continuation here is that even though Sarah remarries and goes off for a quiet lifestyle, Maybell cannot put down the guitar, the auto harp, or apparently any of her three daughters, and they form what really becomes the next generation of the Carter music. Uh, they go out originally as Mother Maybell and the Carter girls, Eventually, they're just the Carter family. The oldest of the daughters is Helen. She was a guitar player, accordion player, piano. All the women in the family were good auto harp players. Helen gets a lot of the credit for being the best overall musician of the group in terms of the number of instruments she played. And she was also the person over the years who did the arrangements of the vocals deciding who would sing what parts and getting those arrangements together for the singing parts. As she came down from Birmingham, one post in the day. As she pulled into the station, you could hear all the people say, there's a girl from Tennessee, boy, she's long and she's tall. She came down from Birmingham on a wall that she can't involve. Well, it's out to the jingle in the rumble and roar. As she flies along the woodland of the hills and by the the middle daughter is the one that most of us know that's june carter who goes on to marry johnny cash she of the three daughters she's the one that became most radio and then tv friendly as their careers progressed through the 40s and 50s and in the early 60s i'm a mountain girl from the state of virginia and <laughs> great <laughs> i don't know about las vegas if y'all have come out here today expecting to see my belly button you might as well go right on home <laughs> here's a classic mountain song Cause it's a rabbit in a log and I ain't got my dog. Oh, Lord, how will I get him? Oh, I know. <laughs> well, there's a rabbit in a log and 
roasting in the coats of good and brown. successful in those mediums to the point where in 1955 Lee Strasberg invites her to come to New York and study acting in a very formal serious setting she does that for a while but she like the rest of the family just can't get away from the music and then the youngest is Anita Carter and I don't know if it's because she's the youngest I'm assuming the other two were able to look at her and pull that age-old trick Anita, you're the bass player. And sure enough, the youngest sister, by default, becomes the bass player. Um, All three of the Carter daughters are incredibly successful with their music, mostly together. Helen and Anita continue to play with Johnny and June during live performances through the 70s and 1980s. In the mighty rush of the engine, in still making occasional performances with Johnny and June through late 1992, early 1993. Uh, At that point, they do maybe the first 20 minutes or so of the show. Everybody would come out at the beginning. Uh, There'd be a big, you know, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. At that time, the piano player was sort of the musical director on stage. And the three sisters would go through a medley of old Carter family songs as sort of a way for Johnny to kind of make his entrance while there was some music going on on stage. And I had the amazing fortune in 91 and 1992 to see the three sisters as part of the Johnny Cash show out here in Chicago, little bar by Wrigley Field, a couple hundred people. glad that I was there. I wish I had the knowledge about their music that I have now. It's sort of that you're enjoying it in hindsight bit, but boy, they had the big frilly matching dresses and the the whole outfit bit, and they could still just sing like anything. Um, By the end of the 90s, uh, Helen passes away in 1998, and then Anita in 1999. Uh, So yeah, what they were able to do on stage in the early 90s was kind of the end of an era and they're just incredible singers incredible musicians what their mom and their aunt created and what they carried through the years 
there are a million reasons why people do not stop talking about these women and the music they made. These women are all over the foundation of not just country music, but American music, period. It starts with them. Like I said, million reasons we're still talking about them. Every chance you have to check them out on an old YouTube clip or, or listen to any of the music, you will love it. So you make a couple of good points here. The first of which is, of course, just the amazing stage presence that these ladies had and where it comes from and where it's going. I mean, first of all, let's keep in mind that there is actually a third generation of Carter family that still occasionally does things together. And this involves June's daughter, Carlene, June and Johnny's son, John Carter cash. So there, you know, the music still is out there in some forms. It's still carrying on much the same as Hank Williams went to Hank Williams, Jr. Went to, Holly Williams and Hank three. So the music is out there. The music is still being made. And I find that important, but I also want to touch on something else you said, which is how it's a real pity that sometimes we only enjoy things in hindsight. So one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast when we first started talking about it is that that's something that I've had happen kind of my entire musical life, right? Like, I wasn't a huge fan of Johnny Cash growing up. I didn't really start listening to his music until I never really had a chance to go see him. I was a bigger fan of Waylon Jennings, and I really enjoyed Waylon Jennings growing up, but I never had a chance to go see him. And now in hindsight, knowing all the things that I've learned in the intervening years, 
you know, you regret these things so much more. Uh, the perfect example of this, at least for me, is how I, I consider myself a fairly big, fairly knowledgeable George Jones fan at this point, but I really wasn't when he was alive. It's really only over the last, you know, eight or 10 years that I've really come to love and appreciate his music. So one of the things I want to stress to anyone who's listening to the podcast is if there's something you're even remotely interested in, grab onto it educate yourself about it. And if there's still a chance to go see it happen, go see it happen. You know, these are chances that are going to leave us more and more. If there's anybody that's ever listened to me talk about Willie Nelson, who thought, yeah, it'd be really cool to go see Willie, go see Willie. He's, he turns 90 this year, folks. He's not going to be around forever. Don't, don't miss the chance. Don't wind up with the regret. So I really think that's an important piece of why I personally wanted to spend time talking about music on a podcast. There's so many things that I regret, and I'm just hoping that others will have a chance to not regret things because you see the chance and you take it. Absolutely. I, and as you were talking about that, I could picture in my head us sitting in a mid-sized theater just outside of Chicago a long time ago seeing Willie Nelson with Merle Haggard and Ray Price. And that, you know, it's one of those things you just, you have the whole rest of your life to say, oh, I'm so glad I was there. And it was that particular show on the tour they did that wound up being part of a PBS special later. And so if you see us pulling up in front of your house, waving concert tickets and a large coffee, Get out that door real quick. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Not much really happens until we get to the late 1950s and Patsy Cline. And Patsy, who we love dearly and have talked about a lot on this program she really kicks the doors open i'm hungry for love like a hobo for food like the devil hunts for She is feisty, she is assertive, she is independent, she backs all of that up. She has very much an equal relationship with the Bradley brothers as producers, arrangers, and musicians on her sessions. She goes toe-to-toe with the Jordanaires and makes sure they understand that they are supporting her, not co-headlining with her. And after Patsy Cline kicks that door through, the 60s gives us Loretta Lynn. And don't you wager that I'll hide my sorrow when I may break right down and ball. Now the race is on and here comes pride up the backstretch. Heartaches are going to the inside. My tears are holding back. They're trying not to fall. Dolly Parton. As a baby 
why not? You got a hot rod for it and a two dollar bill. And I know a spot right over the hill. There's soda pop and the dancing's free. If you wanna have fun, come along with me. Hey, hey, good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking something up with me? As we go through the 70s, we get Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou Harris with incredible contributions to country and folk music and into the more current era where we talk about great musicians like Lucinda Williams. Once I get to Lafayette, I'm not gonna Incredible fiddle player Allison Krauss. So get out the fiddle and rise and up the bow. Look at all Will a patent his toe. We'll make music till the rafters ring. Oh man, picking in the song on the string. So as we go through this, you know, it, again, it kind of focused on that idea that through the 40s and 50s, the industry is so centered on people like Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, Roy Acuff, and certainly all deserving, all incredible musicians, but it's just a noticeable lack of women having any kind of equal access, regardless of talent, regardless of marketability. So we're going to have a nice discussion about this. We are going to start with good old favorite Sarah and Maybell, and we will walk you through what we think are among the most influential women in country music. So climb on board, and here's Chris to tell you a little more. Let's go through some of our normal housekeeping. Remember that you can follow us on Facebook at Six String Hayride. So that's going to be facebook.com slash Six String Hayride. You can search us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Six String Hayride. Uh, six is spelled out in all of these instances. And of course, you can email us at Six String Hayride at yahoo.com. We really enjoy hearing from listeners. It's a treat for us when you send us something. So please feel free to reach out. Tell us what we got right. Tell us what we could have done better. Tell us what you'd like to hear about in upcoming episodes. We're happy to do all that. So as Jim mentioned, this is more or less our list of the queens of country music. We want to acknowledge right off the bat that we can't really talk about everyone. It would be a 20-hour or maybe even 20-week episode if we talked about every female country musician that is worthy of discussion, there are a number of women that we've talked about in the past. There are a number that we'll talk about in upcoming episodes, but for this episode, we're really going to focus on the ones that we feel either made the greatest impact, had the greatest influence or the biggest careers, 
the longest careers spanning the most generations, however you want to look at it. As Jim mentioned, we're going to talk about the Carter sisters. Well, he taught me to love him and call me his flower. There was blooming to cheer him through life's every hour. Oh, I long to see him and he directed our tower. He's gone and neglected this We'll talk about Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Tammy Wynette, Amy Lou Harris. Poncho was a bandit boss. His horse was fast as polished steel. He wore his gun outside his pants for all the honest world of Now, some of you may wonder why we would focus on somebody like Linda Ronstadt, since she's really more country rock than country. Well, for one thing, I would refer you back to episode six, when we showed that country and rock often cross over. In fact, we mentioned a very specific song that Linda Ronstadt did with her first band, The Stone Ponies, a different drum. which was written by Mike Nesmith, who we covered in detail in that episode. And the truth is that Linda Ronstadt's career really intertwines with some of these great performers. Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt seem to be on each other's records constantly for decades. Emmylou, Linda, and Dolly Parton released the trio's records, which were absolutely amazing. Please turn on your magic beat. Climb on board the cart. We're going to take a ride through the world of the women in country music. Well, Chris is right. We are obviously focusing on the women that we believe had the most impact on the music. I think in recent decades, it would be fair to try to make an argument for somebody like Crystal Gale or the Judds. A lot of this really depends on your personal preference and how much you're in the mood to debate commercial success versus artistic integrity. But as Chris said, have a beverage, make your own list. We've certainly 
had our fun with that sort of thing here on the hayride but let's get right down to the history of the matter and of course that starts with sarah carter and then her younger cousin maybell sarah carter is born in 1898 when she is 16 years old she marries ap carter this is in 1915 now they sing and they play music together and they have their family life in rural virginia but the recording career the actual carter family as an entertainment thing doesn't happen until 1927 so sarah has had you know 11 12 years of being married being a wife running a house having a husband in ap carter who's wandering town to town a lot of the time gathering folk songs she's raising children she's doing a lot of this by herself well-known and discussed issue at this point that when we get to 1927 and AP and Maybell try to convince Sarah that the trio should go and get into the recording business in Bristol, it is Sarah who is the one who is most reluctant. She's busy. She's running a household. It's rural. It's low income. It is hard work all the time, every day. So sitting on the porch and singing with your family when the work is done, that's fantastic. Everybody's got time for that. But Sarah was incredibly reluctant to go off to Bristol, try to record, try to make this into a business. Her husband, AP, and Maybell do convince her. They do go. As they say, the rest is history. That history includes... Sarah really getting overlooked in all of this, in part because of Maybell's guitar playing, in part because AP, as a song catcher, as a songwriter, as a man who is really translating public domain and folk tales into songs more than he is composing original material. But AP and Maybell are really the show, and partly because she is a reluctant performer. And partly because it's just in her nature, Sarah's very much in the background and does not get talked about as much as the other two. But when you listen to those Carter family records, as much as the guitar playing of Maybell Carter comes through and grabs your attention, Sarah's voice just puts its hooks into you. And oh my God, I mean, it's... It's a beautiful thing. Obviously, we're going to have a few clips for you here of the Carter family. Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes Who is sailing far over the sea Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes Oh, listen to the jingle, the rumor and the roar As she glides along the woodland 
She climbs a flowery mountain, hear the merry hobos fall. She glides along the woodland, the Wabash cannon fall. On the sunny side, keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all our way. If we keep on the sunny side of life. folks a, a sense of how the music industry changed for women between the 1930s and the 1970s you know a 40 some year period not really that long in the early to mid 1930s sarah is very unhappy touring doing public performances keeping up the image and wants to get a divorce they finally do divorce in 1936 but their promoters, their record company, the radio stations that work with them insist that Sarah keep this secret, that she not be allowed to discuss it, especially with the radio programs. They have sponsors that are flower companies, tobacco companies, various home remedies, kitchen supplies. The advertisers in the mid-1930s do not want a scandal with their huge radio stars. And really, at this point, there's nobody who's more successful and well-known than the Carter family for their radio performances at this time. In comparison, by the time we get to the mid-1970s, you have the music press, the celebrity press, and the audience as a whole actively involved in the debate of what went wrong between Tammy Wynette and George Jones, who's at fault, how drunk was George, did he hit her? Did she hit him? Who ran over who with the lawnmower? Nobody shies away from this being a big deal, in large part because the industry has caught on that any press, any gossip is good. It sells, and certainly stories involving love and sex gone wrong sell a lot. We covered that in murder ballads. But it's also because... The women musicians themselves and women across the country, by the time you get into the 60s and 1970s, they're really pushing the envelope, and rightfully so, to talk about things like divorce, abuse, adultery, husbands who are alcoholics, birth control. The door gets kicked open for a lot of things to be discussed that by the time we get into the 1960s and 1970s, when you have Tammy Wynette and Loretta and Dolly talking about childhood poverty experiences and being bullied for that sort of thing. Dolly Parton with the coat of many colors. In my coat of many colors, I hurried off to school just to find the others laughing and making fun of me. In my coat of many colors, my mama made for me. You have Tammy and Loretta at various times telling the husband, do not come home drunk and expect me to hop into bed with you. But liquor and love, they just don't mix, leave the bottle or me behind. And don't come home with drinking, with loving on your discuss trying to talk about divorce and adultery 
and abuse within earshot of the children. And he thinks C-U-S-T-O-G-Y spells fun or play. I spell out all the hurting words and turn my head when I speak. Cause I can't spell away this hurt that's dripping down my cheek. Tammy pulls out an incredible record in I Don't Want to Play House, where she's really giving the point of view of a young girl who doesn't want to play with her friend anymore because when mommy and daddy play house, mommy cries and daddy leaves. I've watched mommy and daddy, and if that's the way it's done, When she played house, my daddy said goodbye. It's incredibly heart-shattering stuff. But again, just over that 40-year period, we get from don't let the audience know that you want to get a divorce from your husband to songs about the birth control pill. And that's kind of the journey that we're on talking about this music and these particular musicians. So, yeah, in 1936, Sarah does divorce A.P. Carter. They have a bit of a radio career still in the 30s, uh, mostly at that Texas-Mexican border station that we've discussed in earlier episodes. But then in 1943... Sarah decides to quit the act altogether. She moves to California. She has fallen in love with and married her husband's first cousin, a gentleman by the name of Coy Bays. She remains with him, and they remain retired and happy together in California. Now, Maybell carries on starting about the mid to late 1940s with her three daughters. Helen, Anita, and June Carter. And they perform as the Carter family. And then Maybell and the Carter sisters through the late 40s and through the 50s. In the late 40s, they work their radio shows a lot with a young Chet Atkins. Another topic, another musician we've discussed a lot here. When we get into the mid-1960s, and there's a huge folk and bluegrass revival around the country, Sarah comes out of retirement and does some touring. Springtime is coming, sweet old bird, your echo in the woodlands I hear. Down in the meadow, so lonesome you're singing while the moonlight is shining so fair. I know he's away in a far distant land, a land that's over. So by the time we're in the mid-60s, Sarah comes out of retirement with her cousin Maybell, and they do a bunch of shows and live performances as a duo, which, holy geez, that would have been an amazing thing to see. This kind of victory lap or little revival period for Sarah ends 
1971, she appears with Maybell and June Carter and Johnny Cash on Johnny Cash's TV show. Sarah has kind of wound up in this larger family because Johnny Cash marries June Carter. Sound that you hear there, that's the sound of the original Carter family who were just elected to the Country Music Hall of Fame. The original Carter family were A.P., Sarah, and Maybell. And tonight, for the first time together in 27 years, Brother Maybell and Sarah Carter. The grass is just as green, the sky is just as blue. The day the birds are singing too You are my flower That's blooming in the mountain for me But yeah, through the mid to late 60s and into 1971, Sarah gets a very well-deserved revival in doing live performances, things like the Newport Folk Festival, there's the Bill Monroe uh, Bean Blossom Festival for Bluegrass. She comes back out and she performs with Maybell. And by all accounts, it was an extraordinary thing. Uh, you will find a clip of Sarah and Maybell with Johnny and June on our Facebook page. Yeah, Jim, the pioneers here truly are the, the two Carters. I, I almost call them the Carter sisters every time. But the Carter cousins, uh, Sarah and Maybell, they're not only the forerunners of like a female supergroup, they're just the first supergroup in country. You're talking about the person who invented an entire guitar style, as we've mentioned numerous times with the Carter Scratch and Maybell. And you're talking about an amazing vocalist a really good auto harp player and a decent rhythm guitarist in Sarah. As a matter of fact, musically, the Carters were so together that their song, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes actually had that tune lifted by Roy Acuff for the great speckled bird, Hank Thompson for the wild side of life and Kitty Wells. It wasn't God who made honky tonk angels. I am sure love I'll never forget Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes Who is sailing far over the sea What a beautiful thought I am thinking Concerning a great speck of I wrote you You asked me not to call you on the phone But there's something I'm wanting to tell you As I sit here tonight the jukebox plays the tune about the wild side of life 
As I listen to the words you are saying Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes Who is sailing far over the sea Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes So they were very influential. You know, these days you'd see them listed as co-writers on all that song, those songs. At the time, people just, you know, they took what they liked. But this was something that they liked, and that's why it got taken quite often. One other thing I'd like to point out to listeners is, you know, as Jim was mentioning, Sarah and Maybell did do some performances later on together when they were on the Johnny Cash show, when they went to Newport, Things like that. Well, also in 1966, the two of them re, uh, reunited for an album with Columbia Records, which is titled An Historic Reunion. It was released uh, by Bear Family Records, and also you can find it on streaming services. It's just really nice to be able to sit here all these years later and to be able to hear something that's the continuation of what began 39 years prior. You know, again, the Carters kick off the Big Bang with the Bristol Sessions. And here in 1966, they get together for one last shot. And, you know, like I said, I see why it wasn't a big seller. But what a beautiful document for posterity. I highly recommend everyone go listen to it. Um, I don't know that you'll put it on any top albums list ever. But it's just a really nice treat. It really kind of puts a nice little exclamation point at the end of an illustrious career. Our next guest is a bona fide country music legend. She is celebrating her 40th year in, in this business. And this is her new CD, uh, Still Country. Here she is, Loretta Lynn. <laughs> April the 14th, 1932. Uh, she gets compared a lot to Tammy Wynette because the careers kind of overlap. Loretta got a little bit more of a head start. And they both dealt with a lot of the same types of controversies. Both got a lot of attention at various points in their career for their looks, for their physical appearance, even though both of them were really pushing more of an independent woman type image. The other way that they overlap, uh, in fact, a larger way is the controversy that they draw because of their music. 
Uh, we talked about Tammy Wynette dealing with the conflicting ideas of stand by your man and divorcing your man. And that Tammy Wynette's personal life was really kind of difficult and tragic enough that it, it sometimes was hard to tell the story of her life from the story of the songs. Loretta Lynn, very much the opposite in terms of the personal life. Uh, she's 15 when she gets married and then has a kid within that first year. She gets married in 1948. She is with her husband until his death in 1996. They have six kids. She's really steady and grounded and consistent in her personal life. And as a songwriter, as a musician, into the mid, into the late 60s, she really becomes a force to be reckoned with. In 1966, she writes her first big hit. She's the first country woman writer to, um, to write, to sing, to perform her own record. It's called Dear Uncle Sam. He proudly wears the colors of the old red, white, and blue. While I wear a heartache since he left me for you. And this is also one of the first Vietnam themed records of the mid-60s. It's a deeply personal record written from the point of view of a woman who is struggling to be patriotic, but her husband has died in Vietnam. And again, this is 1966. By 1968, 1969 and onwards, it becomes much more typical. Or in 1966 in country music for a female songwriter, this is a real big step forward. In 1972, she addresses the issue of stigma and gossip and hypocrisy that's dumped on divorced women. That song is called Rated X. becomes a number one hit there's also a lot of stations that don't want to deal with it because of the very blunt language in it loretta's point is if a divorced man can go out and play and date and have a good time why are people looking at a divorced woman as a person who failed their home and their family and just to keep the ball rolling here in 1975 she comes out with the pill a record that deals with the topic of birth control and how that affects a woman's life. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got this is kind of a nice point counterpoint for Loretta because before the pill, 
she had had a record called Ones on the Way. And it's basically a mom in Topeka with one kid throwing up their food, one kid not wanting to eat their food, one kid hitting on another kid, the doorbell's ringing, the phone's ringing, the husband wants to bring friends home for supper, and the woman keeps coming back to the fact that there's one on the way. She's pregnant, and she's in this incredible you know, chaotic situation. And yeah, what's the husband doing? Oh, I'm going to bring some friends home. Why don't you get dinner going? But here in Topeka, the screen doors are banging. The coffee's boiling over and the wash needs a hanging. One wants a cookie and one wants a changing. And one's on the way. Uh, so yeah, to come back in the mid-70s with the pill, a great point, counterpoint for those records. Loretta has a brilliant, successful career, really, through the 70s, 80s. There's a few downtimes, like there's going to be for any musician over that many years. But between 1966, when she gets her first Grammy nomination, and 2018, when she gets her last one, she is nominated more years than not. She wins four altogether. More impressively over that time, in 2013, President Obama gives her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She has also received the Kennedy Center Honor, the Academy of Country Music, Artist of the Decade for the 1970s, and she was a unanimous choice for the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, oh, and then they tossed a Lifetime Grammy at her as she was walking out the building, just in case she needed another award. Uh, highly decorated, deserved every every damn bit of it. This is a woman who lived the real life that she wrote about. Same husband for many decades, six kids, started having kids young. Of course, she's going to write about the poverty she grew up in, the difficulty of being a pregnant woman with a house full of young kids, and then the arrival of the birth control pill. She has a wonderful victory lap towards the end of her recording career when Jack White jumps in and produces and arranges a record for her called Van Leer Rose. She was a bell of Johnson County, Ohio River, who sent a beauty to behold, like a diamond in the cold. All the miners, they would gather round, talk about the man. Grammy wins. It was incredibly successful on rock stations and country stations. And it gave her a chance to prove that she could still write and sing with the best of them. Uh, much like Johnny Cash had that late resurgence in his career, Loretta had that same chance. She made the best of it. She got the attention of a much younger audience all of a sudden. Uh, again, that's Van Leer Rose from 2004. The woman writes over 160 songs, kicks out 60 albums over her lifetime. And again, uh, she wrote what she lived. She did it damn well. There's few that would be in her company. The great Loretta Lynn. Yeah, Jim, those are all really good points about Loretta Lynn. Um, I do want to add a little bit of color to some of those. 
Um, One's on the way, which is a fantastic song was written by practically friend of the podcast. By this point, Shel Silver Silverstein uh, seems like we mention him on every single episode. Uh, I also would like to point out that I don't know if this is true or not, but it certainly seems logical. So Jack White produces Van Leer Rose in 2004. Well, prior to that, one of the songs you mentioned, Rated X, was actually uh, covered live by the White Stripes and, in fact, was the B-side of one of their singles uh, a few years prior to that. I want to say 2001. She also had a very successful duet career with Conway Twitty. Uh, The first one came out in 71. The final one came out in 81. So essentially, every year or thereabout, the two of them were putting out a record for uh, of duets, I should say. In fact, one of my favorite songs, period, uh, in the little bouncy innuendo country genre, is a song that the two of them cover. It's called Wild Mountain Berries, or sometimes you'll see it listed as Pickin' Wild Mountain Berries. You got good all over your face. Oh, your lipstick is way out of place. Are we gonna tell them what we tell them every time before? They wanna leave us alone. They want us to come home. I first became familiar with that song when I saw a clip of Jeannie C. Riley and Glenn Campbell uh, doing that on his show. And so when I realized years later that Conway and Loretta had done it, you know, that's just a really fun song. You know, it's again, it's the it's the innuendo that we've talked about before where they come back down from the hill and they're both soaking wet and they haven't been swimming. So why are they wet? Well, we were just picking berries. That's all. So really fun song done in a great way by the two of them. Um, I also think it's important to point out that unlike, you know, some of the other women that we'll talk about, or I guess artists even that we'll talk about Loretta never retired. Her final album came out in 2021. Uh, It was called Still Woman Enough. Well, I've been through some bad times, been on the bottom, been at the top. And I've seen life from both sides. It's what you make with what you've got. There's been times life's got me down. Pick myself up and bounce that right one was back actually around. produced by her daughter, uh, Patsy Lynn Russell, of course, named after her friend Patsy Klein. This came out not too long uh, before Loretta passed, but it even includes Keep on the Sunny Side, uh, the Carter songs. And yes, as an artist, she's just completely successful with everything she does. Uh, In 1967, she releases the single Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' With Lovin' On Your Mind, which is her first country number one hit. And don't come home a-drinkin' with lovin' on your mind. No, don't come home a-drinkin' with lovin' on your mind. Just stay out there on the town and see what 
she follows that up with her next album in 1968, uh, which is called Fist City. And the title track from that one becomes her second number one. But the man I love when he picks up trash, he puts it in a garbage can. And that's what you look like to me. And what I see is a pity. You better close your face and stay out of my way if you don't want to go to Fist City. This is just a really fun, catchy song. But if you read her autobiography, well, I guess I should say her first autobiography since she has three, she points out that this is just how she felt. I guess there was some girl in Tennessee somewhere who was making eyes at her husband. And so she kind of wrote this song as her response to my man may not be a saint, but I'll beat the hell out of you if you don't back off. Well, Loretta and her husband had their own version of guerrilla marketing where what they would do with some of her earlier singles is they would do trips across the country stopping at radio stations and they would give DJs a copy of the record. They would go on the air and chat with them. You know, they just really tried to get out there and shake hands and get the word out. So she was definitely not somebody who was going to kick back and let whatever happened happen. She definitely directed her career in a very meaningful way. And I think it's something that artists, even to this day, can and should learn from. You know, obviously nobody's going to drive cross country with a stack of singles in their trunk anymore. But in terms of really getting out there and getting your name out there and talking to people, letting them know who you are and trying to form a connection in order to get them on your side, this is just a really well thought out strategy that worked for Loretta and her husband quite nicely. You know, in, in 1966 with Dear Uncle Sam, she takes on the government. In 1967 with Don't Come Home and Drinking with Loving on Your Mind, she's taken on the husband. In between that, you ain't woman enough to take my man. She's taken on, you know, the women in the neighborhood who might move in on her guy. Uh, she doesn't back down from a fight. If you don't want to go to this city, you better detour around my town. Because I'll grab you by the hair of the head and I'll lift you off of the ground. I'm not a thing, my baby's a saint. Because he ain't and that he won't pat around with a kitty. I'm here to tell you, gotta lay off of my man if you don't want to go to this city. To assist us in the presentation of tonight's top ten list, please welcome live from Dollywood, Dolly Parton, her own self. Dolly, there you go. Okay, the uh, category tonight, top ten Dolly Parton pet peeves. Dolly, are you all set? Here we go. I'm ready. Okay, number ten. Accountants who don't understand how much it costs to make me look this cheap. Yes. And number nine. Trying to play guitar in these five-inch fingernails. <laughs> and number eight. When the county declares my hair a fire hazard. <laughs> Number seven. <laughs> Confused Dalai Lama constantly asking for theme park royalties. <laughs> uh, Number six. You can't get a wig repaired because Letterman's got some kind of a hairpiece crisis. Oh, no. hey, come on. Uh, Number five. A rhinestone rash. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Number four. Whenever Number four. Okay. Go Whenever ahead. He... You ready? Uh, I'll let you just go home, Dolly. <laughs> okay. Number four. Okay. When...
when he visits Dollywood gift shops, Garth Brooks always shops with the shop lifts stuff under that big hat of his. Yeah, let's do go home. <laughs> Just three Dolly more. been smoking her own self. <laughs> I think so. We uh, Number down. three. Number three. Okay, smart-ass MCs who introduced me by saying, and now here they are, Dolly Parton. <laughs> when the Super Bowl is over, winner never says, hey, I'm going to Dollywood. Uh, that's right. And now, the number one Dolly Parton pet peeve. Nobody notices I've got a great ass, too. Well, the incomparable Miss Dolly Parton. Now, we could sit here and talk about her music probably for longer than we talked about your top 20 list, Jim. We could probably put out a War and Peace version of Dolly. And there's a lot to talk about. She has 25 number one country singles. She has 44 top 10 country albums. She has charted 110 times. She's got some of the most successful songs in any genre. But I think that it's just as important, if not maybe even more important, to talk about Dolly Parton, the icon. So she's born in January of 1946 in a small little cabin on the banks of the Little Pigeon River in Tennessee. She always talks her whole life about how she's from the Great Smoky Mountains. She loves to mention this. She comes up with Porter Wagoner, as we've spoken about before. Eventually, she breaks free from Porter Wagoner, and she goes on to all of the music success that we know of. But let's talk some more about other stuff. Jim, I know you've been looking into Dolly's career outside of just the music alone. So what do you have for the Hayride faithful about Miss Dolly Parton? Well, Dolly Parton, uh, singer, songwriter, musician, hell of a banjo player. catches just about everyone by surprise when you first find out about that aspect of her talent. Uh, we've talked a lot about Dolly Parton in terms of her brilliant classic album from 1971, Code of Many Colors, basically a, a story about her childhood and poverty and her relationship with her mom. Uh, it's a fantastic album. As we get into 1974, 1975, Dolly's really broken away from her partnership with Porter Wagner. This is similar to what we're seeing with Tammy Wynette and Loretta Lynn through the late 60s and the early 70s, where whether it be through the subject matter of the songs that are being written by these women or 
the establishing themselves as independent, separate from being a duet act or having a television show with a male artist. And Dolly, through the 70s, uh, again, Coat of Many Colors, and then Jolene, and then she breaks away from Porter Wagner. By the end of the 70s, we're kind of getting into what we can easily call now is Dolly Parton Incorporated. She is a global phenomenon. We get the 9 to 5 movie. Um, after that, she does a comedy with Burt Reynolds called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Her and Burt Reynolds become good friends. She continues to have hit after hit, whether it be Johnny Carson, David Letterman, or a lot of award shows and variety shows. She is everywhere on TV. Her charity work and her focus on spending her vast fortune on social justice issues, specifically issues involving children that are in poverty and don't have good access to education. She has been known to fund a lot of scholarships for a lot of deserving students. And she's really somebody at this point where you can go around the world and whether you know her as a songwriter, as a singer, as a person from the movies, as an author, as a source of great charity, as a human hairdo, everybody on this planet knows Dolly Parton for one reason or another. It, she's really that type of phenomenon at this point. And to me, it just keeps going back to the music. Guitar player, banjo player. She writes and arranges on the piano. She handles production and recording duties on a lot of her projects. There was a lot of fuss last year when she got inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and at first, Dolly was, you know, polite Southern lady. Well, that's quite the compliment, but we all know I'm only sort of that and not really that. The amount of love and respect that came from the music-loving audience of any genre and from a whole bunch of rock and roll musicians was truly impressive. Uh, I've seen the TV coverage of the awards ceremony and you had Dolly Parton up there and anybody and everybody up to and including the singer from Judas Priest was right there with a big grin on his face like, hey, I'm singing with Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. I figure if I'm going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I'm going to have to earn it. That's how you know somebody is really that much of an institution, is that iconic, is that deserving of the awards, not just from the country world, but she has done a lot of the American Standard Songbook. And yeah, she can rock and swing and do rockabilly, you know, as well as anybody. Uh, the record she's working on now is a straight rock record, and she's been collaborating with John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater. There is no shortage of great musicians that would just drop everything and run 
to have a chance to work with Dolly Parton. There are a number of songs, of course, that Dolly Parton is incredibly well known for. Uh, we know all the hits. Jolene, Coat of Many Colors, 9 to 5, Here You Come Again. Now I can easily understand how you could easily take my man, but you don't know what he means to me, Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I didn't have a coat, and it was a way down in the fall. Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of Just a step on the boss man's ladder But you got dreams he'll never take away On the same boat with a lot of your friends Waiting for the day your ship will come in And the tide's gonna turn And it's all gonna roll your way Working nine to five Well, I believe last time I said she should be the interstellar ambassador to those aliens out there listening to Marty Robbins' voice, and I certainly still believe that. There is really no shortage of accolades that can and should be paid to her. And you're right. Uh, her Imagination Library, which is her project that funds books for kids, uh, and there's no there's no qualifier to join this. You you simply, if you have a child under a certain age, you're able to get your kid enrolled and they receive a book. I believe it's once a month. Uh, it just shows up no cost. So this is an amazing thing. Um, you mentioned her induction into the rock and roll hall of fame. So of course she was inducted into the country music hall of fame in 1999 uh, 23 years later, she gets inducted into the Rock Hall last year. And you're right, there was a little bit of a backlash, and she sort of seemed ready to step aside. But when you watch Rob Halford with just this sheer look of joy on his face, singing Jolene with Dolly Parton, he literally looks like he's about to melt. And this is the big badass from Judas Priest that we all grew up, you know, thinking like, whoa, there's nothing more metal than Rob Halford. And then you realize there's nothing he wants to do more in that moment than sing that song with Dolly Parton. I mean, what's not the love she, you know, she has her own theme park called Dollywood. And I remember as a kid, when I first heard about this thinking, well, that's stupid because it's just Hollywood, but with Dolly, but then you realize 
No, it's so much more. Like this is just a place for her people to gather. You know, it's a, of course, it's a brilliant business decision, right? So as the businesswoman, this is parallel to none. But it's more than that because it's just another place for her fans to get together, celebrate their love of her music and her works and her charity. And it helps her generate a lot of the money which goes to these causes and projects. You know, there's some other stuff that should absolutely be mentioned here. Of course, she's Miley Cyrus's godmother. Also, when we were researching this episode, I learned one of the most mind-blowing facts I've ever learned on this show, and that is that the songs Jolene and I Will Always Love You were written in the same day. What kind of songwriting session leads you to two of the biggest damn hits of a person's career? And I Will Always Love You is one of the greatest selling singles of all time. But I know I'll think of you each step of the way and I will always love you will always love you there's also a really interesting story about I will always love you of course we've talked before about how she wrote that song uh, as a tribute to Porter Wagoner and how he agreed to let her go from her contract with him if he, she would let him produce the record. But I also learned that in the 70s, Elvis wanted to record that song, but he or more possibly or probably uh, Colonel Tom Parker wanted to take a large cut of the songwriting credit in exchange for recording the song. Now, you would think you have Elvis record your song, that's going to be worth a lot, especially to somebody who's in the beginning part of the successful part of their career. But she had the presence of mind not to give up any of her songwriting credit. And a few decades later, this becomes one of the greatest selling singles of all time by Whitney Houston. What an amazing foresight to have not to give away something for short-term gain that winds up being so much bigger. Also, I want to talk about Dolly the Musician a little bit as well. I know uh, Jim was talking about her. She is a fantastic banjo player, as he mentioned. Uh, I've seen her play auto harp on a couple of TV appearances. Another really good job. Uh, she's a decent guitar player. But she, like, stylistically, she manages to cross a lot of different genres. She recorded several bluegrass albums in the 90s, uh, most of which are very good. Uh, just under a year ago, in March of 2022, she releases an album called Run, Rose, Run, which is the companion piece to a book written by James Patterson and Dolly Parton. So multimedia does not begin to describe the phenomenon that is Dolly Parton. Yeah. Oh, heaven let your light shine down. Oh, heaven let your light shine down. 
Listeners, that door that Patsy Cline kicks open in the late 50s and early 60s for female country artists to emerge and really succeed um, as individual artists, that leads us to, of course, Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton, and finally to Tammy Wynette, uh, an incredibly gifted singer an incredibly tragic personal life. Uh, she's born in 1942. She leaves us in 1998. She only lives to be 55 years old. The amount of music that she gives to the world and the amount of personal difficulty that she endures, both are, are just really difficult to measure. Um, between 1969 and 1973, she winds up with 10 number one hits. Overall, she sells over 30 million records. Uh, again, she's a, a child in Mississippi in the early 1940s. Her father dies when she's only nine months old. And that is something that provides a lot of sadness, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty that she seems to be processing through her whole life. She gets started in music in the early 60s, doing, you know, local appearances. Uh, she's in Alabama at the time. In 1966, she meets Billy Sherrill, the producer and writer, and her first single comes out that year. It's a version of Apartment Number 9. Just follow the stairway to this lonely world of mine. You'll find me waiting here in apartment number nine. It's a great, I'm alone, I'm heartbroken, I'm trapped, self-trapped in my home, it's basically the apartment where love will never return, the sun will never shine. That idea of, you know, apartment number nine, that sets up a really good vowel-based rhyme scheme through the song. It's great songwriting, and Tammy Wynette absolutely nails it. Um, her first really huge hit is a song called Your Good Girl's Gone Bad. So I'm gonna make some changes in our home I've heard it said if you can't beat them, join them So if that's the way you've wanted me to be I'll change if it takes that to make you happy Tammy Wynette is very innovative and revolutionary through the mid and late 60s because she is starting to do something in music that really hadn't happened before. She's talking about regular female points of view towards life, towards being a mom, towards working, towards having a husband that's either a great guy or a total ass. She kind of covers a little bit of everything. And if you look back over the reviews of her albums through the 60s and early 70s, 
you keep seeing words like haunting, aching, painful, sincere, heartbreaking. There's a theme here. Uh, again, the woman had an absolutely dreadful, really sad personal life. What she accomplishes as a singer is extraordinary. And she even catches a lot of, I would argue, undeserved bullshit for that. In May 1968, she puts out a record, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. But the words were hiding from him now Tear the heart right out of me Our D-I-V-O-R-C-E Becomes final today Me and little J-O-E Will be going away Of course it plays to that idea that when adults are talking about something and they don't want the young children to know, they spell the words out. You would hope that they're having a conversation like that where they're spelling out Christmas or birthday or present or picnic. But no, they're trying to keep the young kids from hearing things like cheating and abuse and divorce. This is a hugely influential record. And again, May 1968, not a super long time ago, but this is one of the first chances that women get to talk about their love life and, and their married life in music and in art. It's kind of ridiculous that it takes that long. The song is influential enough that it winds up being covered by Dottie West, by the queen of rockabilly, Wanda Jackson, by Dolly Parton, and by Roseanne Cash, whose childhood is marked by her father, Johnny Cash, leaving her mother, Vivian, to pursue his love of June Carter. When the divorce single comes out in May of 68, there's a ton of controversy. We've talked about how the Dixie Chicks caught a lot of nonsense over the issues of spousal abuse with the Earl Has to Die record. Um, there's a big backlash in May of 68 over the divorce record because she's talking about something that we just don't talk about in nice, polite circles. And then in September of 1968, just a few months later, because Tammy is that thoughtful and realistic and well-rounded, the next big hit single is The Other Side of the Coin. It's Stand By Your Man. I'll be proud of him Cause after all, he's just a man And then she gets even more backlash, especially from women in the late 60s who are rightfully really pushing and fighting for more equality between men and women. A lot of women create a backlash and respond to Tammy Wynette in a really negative way because the song is called Stand By Your Man. And they take it to mean no matter what. If he drinks, if he quits his job, if he whoops you, if he beats the kids, if he kicks the dog, whatever, stand by your man. And all the criticism rained down on her because 
some people believe that that was the entire message of the song. If you look through this kind of censorship or backlash phenomena in music, country, rock and roll, jazz, whatever, you often see that people complain about a song or sometimes a film or a book based on maybe knowing 10 words of the piece of work in question. They don't bother to dig into the details. They don't bother to dig into the message. They have a knee-jerk reaction based on a title or a catchphrase, and all hell breaks loose. So let's look at Stand By Your Man. The song opens up with, it's hard to be a woman. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Given all your love to just one man You'll have bad times And he'll have good times Okay, so clearly right off the bat, this is not some, you know, Peyton Place zombie wife kind of stick by the guy no matter what. She says straight up, it's hard to be a woman. And then when she gets into the course and she says, love him, stand by him, you know, be good to him, she frames it this way. After all, he's just a man. You know, we all love our cats and dogs, but we all know that at some point they're going to puke on the floor. I think that Tammy is absolutely right, and a lot of women are absolutely right, to look at their husbands or, or their partners this way. He's cuddly, he's warm, he can cook a good dinner sometimes, he brings home a paycheck, nice enough guy. But yeah, after all, he's still a man. I'm going to have to clean up some kind of nonsense from this guy at some point. Because after all, he's just a man. The song and the delivery that Tammy provides, to me, really makes it clear that She's standing by him, not for some zombie-like conformity reason. She's standing by him because ultimately in the long run, it's the right thing to do, despite the fact that, again, after all, he's just a man. And so, again, she endures a lot of backlash for this, but it winds up being her signature song. It winds up being a, a part of her career through her whole life. And it really spills into popular culture in lots of ways. It's such an influential record. Uh, Chris and I are both obvious fans of the Blues Brothers film, uh, in part because our love of a good car chase and the city of Chicago, the music of Stax Records in Memphis that you get throughout the film. But geez, from the Rawhide bit to the Stand By Your Man bit to the Country and Western bit, you know, that movie's got a little something for everybody. And I remember for years knowing from front to back all those funny dance moves that Belushi and Aykroyd do for the Stand By Your Man bit. My friend Tracy and I used to be able to do it pretty well. Song endures as a piece of important social commentary, as a musical accomplishment, at a point in the 1960s when the entire world was changing and women in music were really pushing 
a lot of that change. Uh, beyond country music with Loretta and Tammy and, and Dolly, you get in rock and roll, you get Grace Slick with the Jefferson Airplane, you get Janis Joplin, who is just a complete entity unto herself. Uh, by the time we get to the early 70s, we have Emmy Lou and then uh, guitarist Bonnie Raitt emerging. This is really clearly a before and after time for women and the messages that they deliver in music. Of course, because Tammy Wynette has this difficult and tragic, I mean, her life is really several great country music songs. It, it's sad to say, but by the time we get into the seventies, she has to have a hysterectomy. She has intestinal problems. As a result of that, she becomes addicted to painkillers. And that pill addiction and those intestinal health issues will dog her for the rest of her life. And again, she passes away. She's just 55 years old. When she was a kid, and you know, again, we mentioned her dad passed away when she was very young, not even a year old. But it's her dad's family, the aunts and uncles that support her music. And they get her onto a local Alabama TV show called Country Boy Eddie. And she's really young at this point. This is the early 60s. This helps her get noticed. Um, and again, by the end of the 60s, incredibly successful, brilliant. And there's that kind of controversy. You know, I think a lot of people just can't handle the fact that in May of 1968, she's issuing the record about divorce. And then just a few months later, it's Stand By Your Man. You know, and, and if some of the critics or some of the audience couldn't keep up, that's not Tammy's fault. You know, she's laying it out there, uh, both sides of the issue. And if you can't keep up, you know, that's too bad for you because you're missing out on some incredible music and uh, a real necessary point of view that needs to be injected in the cultural conversation by this point. Tammy herself gets into yet another marriage in 1971 with George Jones. Uh, There's not any mountain to rugged to climb, no desert to burn the cross. Darling, if you would just show a sign. In 1975, they're getting divorced. And then in 1976, in the aftermath of a actual violent and contentious and very, very public, unlike Sarah Carter, uh, divorce situation here, they have an incredibly huge hit with Golden Ring, a fantastic record that we have uh, discussed in several episodes. So Tammy's enduring all this personal difficulty with the men in her life, and with these incredibly intense health issues that lead to painkiller addiction. And then she has one of her most successful albums in the aftermath of a divorce where she's singing marriage songs with her ex-husband. I don't know how she managed to go through this, but any one of these records that you listen to, they're just extraordinary. And that kind of high, lonesome painful, haunting voice is just ever-present. There's a real emotional frailty 
in the singing. She doesn't have a power voice like Patsy Cline. She has fragile, frail, but not weak, not off-key. It's just kind of, it's beautiful pain. And I know maybe that seems like an odd way to put it, but much like with Graham Parsons, you have a singing voice that is just lovely. But the message and the stories are ones of deep, deep personal sadness. And that conflict of tragedy being delivered in the voice of an angel. Darling, this will be goodbye forevermore. There goes my reason for living. There goes the one of my dreams. Mid 80s, she's really having kind of a downtime in her career. Between 1986 and 1988, she goes through rehab and declares bankruptcy. Uh, The only real bright spot here in this period is in 1987, she contributes um, a really great album, an album that is considered to be a bit of a comeback for her. It's more of a raw, rural-type album than that kind of string-filled country politan. Uh, ballad stuff in the 70s and uh our hero the lady herself emmy lou harris pops onto the scene to give beautiful backing vocals uh supporting tammy on a track called beneath the painted sky he told me not to be afraid when it stormed outside he said in your room sweetheart the sun will always shine and through the years of growing up, if something made me cry, it didn't seem to hurt. And again, that's 1987. That's uh, Tammy Wynette's one bright spot during that period. She's dealing with bankruptcy, rehab. Emmy Lou shows up and helps her out. Higher Ground is an incredibly wonderful album. And then in 1993, she pops back up again with Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn in a record called Honky Talk Angels. Um, I know Chris loves this record because it's only 32 minutes long. And that's, (laughs) you know, that's one of those things that he cares about uh, with good reason. You know, the quality of the story should be short, sweet, and to the point. Silver threads and golden. Dolly Parton has often said that she wanted to make sure that the three of them did a record together while they were all still alive. And there are moments where the record sounds like that. It sounds like a product of let's just get this done while we can. They do have a a great hit off of this record with a version of Silver Threads and Golden Needles. Uh, The album does get to number six. Tammy kind of threw 
the early to mid nineties. She does a few appearances. Again, she has this record with Dolly and, and Loretta, but her health and her problems are really catching up with her. And in April, 1998, Tammy Wynette leaves us again, the age of 55, five husbands, quite a few stays in the hospital and in rehab, serious intestinal and stomach trouble through most of her adult life, haunting, aching, sad, painful, sincere are adjectives that show up in most of her album reviews. The woman endured a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain. She turned that into some of the most incredible singing and storytelling in country music in in any era. Uh, But she really kind of owns the 1970s. Her duets with George Jones, her work on her own. She was one of those artists that was also kind of known for her outfits, for her fashion, for the hairdos. It takes a whole lot of woman to hold it together today. Cause a lot of other women have a whole lot of time to play. You gotta be a saint on Sunday morning, the devil on Saturday night. And when you love it, I do it right. Incredibly influential in just such a short life, the great Tammy Wynette. Jim, you talked about Tammy's vocal style, and I think the perfect description of it is the way that her original producer, Billy Sherrill, who was just a legendary uh, music row producer, he described her vocal style as a teardrop vocal style. And I think that just nails it because, you know, there's a lot of people who can convey emotion in their singing styles. You hear emotion when you hear Dolly sing a song like Jolene or I will always love you. You hear emotion when you listen to any of Emmy Emmy Lou's stuff. But Tammy Wynette has this ability to take you on the ride with her. Not only do you hear her emotion, but you kind of become enveloped in it. It becomes a larger-than-life thing that can kind of sweep you along with the music. Uh, Next guest is uh, certainly an old uh, friend and and quite a favorite of ours here on this program. I have a copy of her newest album. Number number what? 23. 23? You don't know. You quit counting? Okay. Uh, anyway, it's called uh, Emmy Lou Harris and the Nash Ramblers at the Ryman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome her back to our program, the one, the only Emmy Lou Harris. Kids! So she's born on April 2nd, 1947, in Birmingham, Alabama. She spends her early years as a military brat, and in fact, at one point, she thinks her father has been killed. It actually turns out that he's in a POW camp in Korea where he spends 10 months of his life. So this, of course, is a pretty formative episode early on in her life. And she talks about it a little here and there in interviews early on. She goes to school at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro to study music. But ironically, she drops out to play music after she discovers artists like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. She decides this is what she wants to do with the rest of her life. 
1969, this leads to her uh, recording her first album, which is called Gliding Bird. This record goes nowhere. It's not on a major label. You'll notice that Amy Lou doesn't really refer to it much. She, her life changes completely and for the better in 1971 when she meets Graham Parsons. In her words, he helped give form to my music. So after her show that Graham attends, they go back to the home of Walter Egan. And they spend late into the night singing and swapping songs amongst one another. Now, a couple of side notes about Graham. We talked him. A, we talked about him a bit during the uh, episode six crossover. But I actually found something hilarious about him in this book. So, in 1955, nine-year-old Graham convinces his—I don't recall if it was his parents or his grandparents—to take him to go see Elvis. After the show, he marches backstage, walks up to Presley and says, you're Elvis Presley and I'm the little kid who buys your records. In 1971, she meets Linda Ronstadt and Neil Young while she's playing with Graham. Uh, Linda and Amy Lou wind up singing backing vocals on the seminal Young album, Harvest. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. You keep me searching In 1973, she records with Graham on his second and final solo album, Grievous Angel. She says that when she was recording Love Hurts and the Angels Rejoiced last night, that she finally feels that she learns to sing properly with Parsons. A house, not a home, was the picture set and faded for sweet little sister and me. Our daddy would frown while mother was praying. His heart was so hardened that he would not believe. Uh, also, there is a song on Grievous Angel called In My Hour of Darkness, which was co-written by Graham and Amy Lou and does feature a backing vocal by Linda Ronstadt. Amy Lou feels like she's just finally learned to sing properly with Graham four months prior to the release of his album. He winds up tragically passing away after his death. Amy Lou says she feels she very much has to carry the torch for Graham's music since he was the one who turned her on to the Leuven brothers, Charlie pride, George Jones, Merle Haggard, uh, etc. All these major country artists first came into her orbit when she had Graham play their music for her. So she just feels compelled to return the favor and to keep the legacy of Graham Parsons alive, which she goes on to do to this day. Luxury liner for a ton of steel. No one in this whole wide 
Rodney Crowell introduces Emmy Lou to a group of people he's been hanging up, hanging out with. In fact, Susanna Clark first hears Emmy Lou when Rodney Crowell plays her a tape. She's part of an important clique of singer songwriters, which includes herself, her husband, Guy, Towns Van Zant, Mickey Newberry, Billy Joe Shaver, etc. So this is going to be a hotbed of songwriting activity, which is going to shape country music for a couple of decades to come. She meets Rodney for the first time at the home of John and Fezu Starling. John Starling was actually a member of a bluegrass group called Seldom Seen. So upon meeting, Emmy Lou and Rodney immediately feel this musical connection. It feels like they're just meant to play music together. One of the things I actually like about a lot of Amy Lou's records is that she includes covers on a very frequent basis, and she doesn't keep those covers within any sort of genre. More bottles of wine, which is probably my favorite Emmy Lou Harris song on Quarter Moon in a Ten Cent Town. But it's and then on Blue Kentucky Girl, we get her first number one hit with the Dallas Frazier song Beneath Still Waters. I should point out that when I say her first number one hit, I do mean her first number one billboard hit. She had hit number one on the country charts uh, with this, with her cover of Buck Owens together again on her album, elite hotel. The key to my heart, you hold. into the 90s she does start to get a lot less airplay but the critical acclaim never goes away she dissolves the hot band she forms a new band called the nash ramblers which features sam bush on mandolin so again she's just keeping herself surrounded by these amazing players uh she shifts her music in a new direction again and starts working with daniel lanois the u2 producer 
In 97 and 98, she goes on the road with Sarah McLaughlin's Lilith Fair. And we should never, ever overlook the fact that Emmylou Harris more or less single-handedly not only saved, but revitalized the Ryman Auditorium. In 1992, she had this idea to do a live album. She insisted that it be done at the Ryman. Uh, By this point, the Opry had no longer been at the Ryman for a few decades. There was a lot of discussion as to what should happen to the Ryman. Should it be torn down and have something new built in its place? What should happen? And it was just sitting there practically unused. Amy Lou gets this idea to do this album, does it. Before you can blink, money is raised. The Ryman is restored. It remains a vital and attractive venue to this day. You can go do the tour if you're ever in Nashville. I highly recommend it. It's one of the my favorite things I've ever done. Emmylou Harris is a really unique figure in country music. I, I think if you look at any era, because she starts out, she's clearly eager and respectful in her role as the student as the new kid and she learns the ropes with Graham Parsons and the musicians she meets in the early 70s when she meets Rodney Crowell who wonderful guitar player writer arranger does production work she's able to kind of have a more equal footing partnership But throughout her career, one of the really noticeable constant things about Emmylou Harris is she makes this transition from student to very successful, very skilled solo artist. And at this point in her career, kind of that elder statesperson type position, she's somebody who is always always constantly engaged in participating in the music as chris was pointing out she has helped out on a ton of different albums doing backup vocals and her voice is beautiful unique she is a wonderful harmony singer in that rare company of somebody like david crosby it's it's really exceptional and noticeable whenever you hear her voice pop up on somebody's record. She's just one of the hardest working people in music. And all of the things that she took on earlier in the career, uh, the work with Graham Parsons and then carrying the legacy of Graham Parsons, uh, Emmy Lou's cover of Luxury Liner is, I think, fantastic. It's one of my favorite things she did early on. And certainly for picking one of the Graham Parsons songs to cover, it's just fantastic. It's a great record. Joining in and participating in projects like the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack, where she works with Alison Krauss. The singing between the two of them is just fantastic. 
Um, later on in the 2000s, Emmy Lou and Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits do a record together as a duet. This is us in your daddy's car. You and the missing link. Yeah, I had a little too much to drink now. But too long in the sun. Having too much fun. You and me and our memories. This is us. This is us. Just another fantastic record. And then in later years, and Chris touched on this, her friendship and then her promotion of the music of Bill Monroe. And I know there's a YouTube clip out there that we're going to have on the Facebook page real soon. Uh, Just fantastic. You know, she's one of those people who's a student of the music. She becomes a master craftsperson of the music. You know, having just spoken about Emmylou Harris, there is somebody we've been mentioning off and on throughout these segments with Dolly and with Emmylou, and that's Linda Ronstadt. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, I understand how it's easy to be a bit dismissive of her because she is more country rock than pure country. Uh, I feel certain she would agree with that characterization but she features in a lot of these stories and so i figured listeners might want to learn a little bit more about her especially since she's been out of the public eye for long enough that unless you grew up in her era you may not have heard much about her so she's born in july of 1946 in tucson arizona If you're like me and you spent some time growing up in Tempe, Arizona, you don't like Tucson because you like the Sun Devils, you don't like the Wildcats, but I'm going to make an exception for Linda Ronstadt. So she grows up listening to an awful lot of traditional Mexican music. When she's 14, she actually forms a folk trio with her brother Peter and her sister Gretchen. Uh, They call themselves the Union City Ramblers, which is a very nice and sort of blase folky name when she's 18 she moves to la and it's during this time that she uh, forms the stone ponies now during a 15 month period between 1967 and 1968 they released three different albums for capitol records this includes a song we talked a little about uh, a little bit about in episode six uh different drum written by former monkey mike nesmith well, you and I travel to the beat of a different drum. Oh, can't you tell by the way I run? Every time you make eyes at me, walk out. You cry, moan, and say it'll work out. But, honey, child, I've got my doubts. You can't see the forest for the falling into the same scene that Emmylou Harris did 
because she winds up playing and hanging out with people like Chris Hillman and Bernie Ledden. Uh, there's also a gentleman named Larry Murray who was in a band called Hearts and Flowers and had played on some of the Stone Pony sessions. So Larry leaves his band, goes on to write for the Johnny Cash show. As a result, in the spring of 1969, Linda goes to Nashville. She's staying at a Ramada Inn while she's there to record, and she actually winds up in a jam session with a couple of relatively unknown guys by the name of Mickey Newberry and Chris Christofferson. So as you can imagine, music is just percolating and circulating throughout these groups of people. Uh, as a matter of fact, while her career is foundering a bit, she winds up opening for Jerry Jeff Walker at the Bitter End in Greenwich Village. Uh, this is back during the time when David Bromberg was actually in Jerry Jeff's band. In a jam session with those guys, she discovers a song called Long, Long Time, and she decides she wants to record this song. Sounds like good advice, but there's no one in my side time washes clean. Love's wounds unseen. That's what someone told me. This group includes Weldon Myrick on pedal steel. Buddy Spiker on fiddle, and Norbert Putnam on bass. So these are some very well-heeled musicians that she's suddenly playing with. She enjoys this session. She enjoys the results. She goes back to New York because she wants to reconnect with Jerry Jeff and uh, David Bromberg. They are all hanging out at a, at a friend's house playing music one night. And when that night ends, she winds up sharing a cab ride with Jerry Jeff Walker to go back uptown. And Jerry Jeff introduces her to a song called Heart Like a Wheel, which was written or performed by the McGarrigal sisters, Anna and Kate McGarrigal. And they just become absolute musical heroes to Linda. Now, these sisters, they kind of defy categorization. They're part pop, they're part folk, they're all Canadian. Uh, as a matter of fact, the McGarrigal family continues in that tradition to this day. You'll probably know the names of two of the children. That would be Martha and Rufus Wainwright. She hasn't really had a lot of success other than, of course, Different Drum was a very big hit early on. But after that, she really hadn't had much in the way of hits. Uh, in 1975, her is her cover of When Will I Be Loved, which was uh, originally done by the Everly Brothers. She manages to go to number two with that song. When will I, I be loved? I've been pushed down. Her version is very good. Again, it's it sounds a little bit dated, but for the time, that was a damn fine song uh both of those songs as a matter of fact you're no good and uh, when will i be loved those are from her album heart like a wheel and that's her last album for capital so she then switches record companies and moves over to asylum records her first single on asylum is her cover of martha and the vandellas heat wave
get this idea that there are an awful lot of musical ideas just bouncing around in Linda Ronstadt's head and soul, just trying to get out. So this really comes to the forefront in 1980 when she takes a year off of her rock slash country rock career and spends that year on Broadway starring in Pirates of Penzance. So spending that year working on Pirates has her wanting to explore more styles of music. She decides she really wants to make an album of jazz standards. So in 1982, she does a record called What's New with uh, Nelson Riddle, who's a very famous uh, composer and arranger. This record does so well that they do two more albums. This absolutely revitalizes uh, Riddle's career at the end of his life. He winds up passing away uh, shortly before their third album is released. But he, you know, suddenly he's thrust right back into the public eye. 1987 then brings two really interesting projects along. The first we talked about briefly, which is the Trios Project, which was an album that was done with Emmylou Harrison, Linda Ronstadt, and of course the incomparable Dolly Parton. So I uprooted myself from my home ground and left Took my dreams and I took to the road When a flower grows wild, it can always survive Also in 1987, she gets to fulfill a childhood dream of hers. She had always wanted to make an album of traditional Mexican music. And this becomes the biggest selling non-English language record in American recording history. The reason we're talking about her is because she intertwines with so many of these other people that we And the spoke fact about. that she's so musically diverse, I mean, her and Dolly Parton, there's just nothing they can't do musically, and that should be celebrated. So, unfortunately, there won't be any chances to see Linda Ronstadt perform, but you can always go listen to the music, and you're never going to feel like that's a day wasted. You and I travel to the beat of a different drum Oh, can't you tell by the way I run Linda Ronstadt, to me, there's two really amazing things about her life and her work that that stand out. Uh, we've talked a lot about how Amy Lou Harris pops up on tons of records doing backup vocals, you know, situations you wouldn't normally think to look for. You can really say the same thing about Linda Ronstadt. And like Chris pointed out, one of her first big moments in her career is when her and the Stone Ponies have a big hit 
with the Mike Nesmith composition, Different Drum. Nesmith actually writes that song early in the Monkees' career, but because of the control that was put on them by their management, limiting what the actual Monkees could contribute early on, they never properly released the song. It's an interesting musical what-if had different drum been a single for the monkeys and Linda Ronstadt had never got her hands on the tune. It's a great record, but honestly, like with Aretha Franklin, her version of respect, I, I think becomes the standard, despite the fact that Otis Redding wrote it and recorded it. Uh, Mike Nesmith, an incredible and very underrated songwriter, his version of different drum is good it's really good but linda ronstadt really took ownership of that song and you know if you're kind of wondering where to place her as a singer uh in terms of is it folk is it rock is it country it's all those depending on what record she's cutting because the woman is a fine enough singer that genre doesn't really matter i mean she did pirates of penzance you know later in her career and she does buddy holly covers I think that's pretty good variety right there. You know Linda Ronstadt is a singer to take seriously because she is one of the few people, and, and really, folks, think about this one. How many covers, successful, well-done covers of a Roy Orbison song can you really think of? Now, a very underrated female singer in the world of country is K.D. Lang, and she does a great version of crying. But before that, Linda Ronstadt in the 70s got her hands on Blue Bayou. And we all know if you've been in the car and you've tried to sing along to an Orbison track, you're best alone in the car with the windows rolled up. It's not going to sound like Roy Orbison. Ronstadt takes Blue Bayou and just nails it. Uh, I remember as a kid with the radio in the 70s, you would hear that song almost every day on the radio. You heard a lot of Linda Ronstadt on the radio in the 70s. She could cover Buddy Holly. She could cover Motown songs. She could do proper justice to a Roy Orbison tune. And if you just look around other musicians of the 70s, she's always there. She knows Emmy Lou and Graham Parsons. I don't care much for the Eagles music, but... Man, come on, I had a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. She's there participating and doing backup vocals on some of their work. She is working with the very fine and relatively unknown guitar player, Wadi Wachtel, who winds up doing a lot of collaborations with Warren Zevon and then winds up in Keith Richards' solo band, The Expensive Lineups, on a Jackson Brown record, on a Graham Nash or David Crosby record through the 70s. 
who, you know, if it's not Emmy Lou there doing the backup vocals, it's most likely going to be Linda Ronstadt, Warren Zevon, Jackson Brown. She has sung with Springsteen. People know to seek her out because other singers take her seriously as a singer. That's kind of the gauge. To me, the other neat thing that Linda Ronstadt pulls off is through the 70s and 80s, she's kind of a big celebrity type, you know, outside of her music, but not really. I mean, she kind of walks this line in a weird way. She's in the tabloids and in the press a lot, but she manages to not let it really attach itself to her in, in the same way that you think of seeing somebody like Cher in the newspapers in the 70s and 80s. Uh, through the mid-70s, Linda Ronstadt is involved with the governor of California, Jerry Brown. Before Jimmy Carter comes along, Jerry Brown is assumed to be a presidential hopeful. It's hard to see a picture of him without Linda Ronstadt next to him through this era in the 70s. And then in 1983, as George Lucas is wrapping up the first three and the best three Star Wars movies, he announces his engagement to Linda Ronstadt at the end of 1983. They stay together through 1988. They never get married. They ultimately break up. But this is a woman who, you know, for a 12-year period from the 70s into the 80s is with the governor of California and then the, well, artistic and financial owner of California and George Lucas. And she's in the press a lot, but the focus is still mostly on those really damn catchy records she keeps putting out and the singles that are on the radio just day after day after day. Uh, Chris pointed out her work in traditional music and Spanish music, and that becomes such a well-known thing in pop culture that at one point she does a guest spot on The Simpsons. Uh, Homer has a snowplow business. His friend Barney has the competing business. Linda Ronstadt sings the jingle for Barney's snowplow. Wow, Linda Ronstadt! Linda Ronstadt? How'd you get her? Well, we've been looking for a project to do together for a while. When the snow starts falling, there's a man you should be calling. That's KL54796. Let it ring. Mr. Plow is a loser, and I think he is a boozer. <laughs> So you better make that call to the plow king. Uh. You know, if the Simpsons make a joke about you, you've arrived. And yeah, clearly Linda, you know, through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Again, if you can cover Buddy Holly and do Pirates of Penzance. And she did quite a few appearances on either The Muppet Show or Sesame Street doing kids television. And for a long time, she was everywhere, and she was singing everywhere she went. People loved it. The last nine, ten years, she has been uh, retired. She has a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, a neurological condition. She has done a fair amount of press and interviews to discuss that, uh, sometimes in the company of Dolly Parton, and she's tried to do some advocacy and fundraising 
but she's mostly, you know, laying low and taking care of her health and enjoying, I hope, enjoying her retirement despite the serious health issues. But yeah, you could not go through the 70s or 80s without hearing this woman sing somewhere on anybody's record at any time. And when she wasn't doing that, she was in the newspaper because Jerry Brown, George Lucas, these are serious people. And if they're seeking out the company of Linda Ronstadt, the woman is no lightweight in any capacity, artistically, intellectually, and uh, damn cute too. Yeah, Linda Ronstadt, often overlooked, but I think that's because she was kind of everywhere all at once for a long time. Well, folks, it is recipe time again on the Six String Hayride podcast. And as Chris just pointed out to me, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, and because we're talking about the women of country music, we have Roseanne Cash's potato salad. Uh, it's a classic. It's something that, you know, potato salad, barbecues, summer, hell, any time of year. It's potatoes, folks. And Roseanne Cash knows her stuff. You are going to need three pounds of red potatoes unpeeled, four hard-cooked eggs, one cup of chopped celery, three to four large kosher dill pickles, coarsely chopped, one medium red onion, finely chopped, a pinch of celery salt, three quarters of a cup of mayonnaise, two tablespoons of Dijon mustard, and a little salt and black pepper as you like. Place the potatoes in a large pot and cover with water. Bring to a boil over medium-high heat and cook until tender, roughly 30 minutes. Drain the potatoes. Remove from the pot and allow them to cool in a large bowl. Cut the potatoes into cubes and return to the bowl. Peel the eggs. Cut them in half and remove the yolks. Chop the egg whites and yolks separately. Add the chopped whites and yolks to the potatoes. Add the celery, the pickles, the onions, and some celery salt to taste. Add the mayonnaise and mustard and stir well. Add salt and black pepper as you like. Cover and refrigerate. I like to let this stand for at least one hour before serving. Makes eight to ten servings. You're going to love it. Boy, I'm tired. Let's go have potato salad. Well, folks, it's pretty obvious that both Emmy Lou and Linda Ronstadt take a lot of the great history of the music from the Carter family to Bill Monroe to more current influences in their peer group, people like Graham Parsons. As we get into the late 80s and then the 90s, 
yeah, we still have Dolly Parton as kind of an institution who's still making music. June Carter through the first half of the nineties, still touring with Johnny and still kicking out great music where we are now is kind of the culmination of all those things. And I guess just looking at it in terms of a, a linear calendar fashion, it's who are Emmy Lou and Linda Ronstadt passing the ball off to. And there's a, a decent enough list of people. You have somebody like Miranda Lambert, who's come along in the last 20 years and has had a lot of commercial success and a fair amount of good critical reviews to, to back that up. She's more of a pop country phenomena. I don't really see her as somebody who is changing the music a lot or preserving any specific legacy a lot. When you look at a couple people that are really serious, heavy duty musicians and really seem to carry a sense of history of the music in their playing. And as a guitar player, I would look at Lucinda Williams, who we've talked about quite a bit. Great songwriter, great guitar player, wonderful, raw, bluesy kind of voice. And if you want to look kind of at the, the fiddle or the bluegrass side of preserving a legacy, you have Alison Krauss. Krauss and her band Union Station had their first big album at the end of the 80s. And through the 90s, she starts racking up Grammys and other types of music awards. She has kind of a musician's musician type following. She doesn't seem overly mainstream popular, but if you ask people that are really into bluegrass or traditional music, her name keeps popping up. So much so that in 2000, when the Coen brothers do Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And we've talked about this film. It's a very deliberate tie-in between the cinema aspect of the story and the soundtrack. It's really a musical. There are set musical pieces where the narrative and the songs match up. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. Gillian Welch and Emmylou Harris sing on the soundtrack quite a bit. You have people like John Hartford, but kind of the secret weapon that comes out of nowhere on the soundtrack is Alison Krauss and her backing band, Union Station. The guitar player in her band is the fellow that does that wonderful uh, open F chord intro on Man of Constant Sorrow. And he's the guy providing the voice while the lovely and talented George Clooney is moving his lips back and forth.
uh, Kraus as a singer and a violin player, fiddle player, really comes out of nowhere on that soundtrack and kind of takes over and owns it. There's this period in the early 2000s where whether it's, you know, Letterman or another late night show, uh, a lot of public television programming, especially pledge drives and things that are sort of about the history of Americana music. And Alison Krauss is just everywhere at that point. And Krauss, very much like Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou Harris, as a singer, she is good enough that she can cross over and do all types of different music. She has done two very well-reviewed and wildly popular albums with Led Zeppelin singer Robert Plant. I'm like a fish out of water and I can't even drink. You don't even want to talk to me when it's over. I agree. Fantastic virtuoso on the fiddle. Uh, also, one of my favorite musicians is in her band and has been for some time, and that's the fact that Jerry Douglas plays dobro uh, in Union Station, and he has for quite a number of years at this point. I was actually lucky enough to see one of those Robert Plant and Alison Krauss shows. In 2008, they headlined one of the nights of Austin City Limits Festival, and I was there. There are only three people who have more Grammy Awards than Alison Krauss. She's actually won 27 Grammys. Now, this is because year after year, she wins Best Bluegrass album, single, whatever. Um, but the only people who have more Grammys than Alison Krauss are Beyonce, Quincy Jones, and the classical conductor uh, Georg Solti. Take those three people away, and Alison Krauss is right up there at the front of the line. She's probably never going to stop winning these things. When all is said and done, who can imagine what will happen? Uh, I also read something, and you never know how true this is, but early on in her life, I guess when she was a teenager, she had to make a decision on what she wanted to focus on, and uh, she chose music over roller derby. Probably not a decision that she regrets for a number of reasons. Folks, as always, thank you for joining us on The Hayride with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Okay, folks, don't forget that you can find us on Facebook under Six String Hayride at patreon.com slash Six String Hayride, or you can email us at Six String Hayride at yahoo.com. We appreciate that you've stuck with us through season one. We hope you really enjoy what we bring your way in season two. Again, if you have any suggestions, we're always open to hearing them. Uh, please get in touch with us. You can contact us through Facebook, through the email, however you want. If you really want to get our attention, you can become a Patreon subscriber. Either way, we're happy to hear what you have to say. We love the feedback we've gotten so far. 
We intend to continue doing this for as long as we can continue to find things to talk about. And for those who know me, I haven't really stopped talking in 49 years. So don't think that's going to be a problem. We'll talk to you soon. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to that home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. May the force be with you.